So in the spirit of full disclosure today, I need you to know that I lost my Sunday school lesson this week. Does anybody know what that phrase means? Anybody? <laughs> it means I lost my temper. It means I lost my Jesus mojo. It means I lost my mind. Uh, yeah. Every man has a breaking point. Right? And woman. COVID-19, travel restrictions, missing my son's Air Force graduation, missing my other son's Army promotion, quarantine, economic collapse, American cities burning, police, uh, politics ripping us apart, hurricanes. I've kept my cool through it all because I am a machine. Okay? But I threw it all away this week. I had to go to my office and take down my ordination papers and take down my theology diplomas off the wall because I was ashamed of myself. And what causes an otherwise self-controlled, mild-mannered, middle-aged Bruce Banner to become a green and violent Incredible Hulk? I couldn't get my air conditioning fixed. Again. All summer long, this has been a problem. Okay? It started in June. The air goes out, no problem, we're under warranty. A tech comes out, he was about 12. He put a Band-Aid on it, and two weeks later, no air conditioning. Now it's July. A new contractor is assigned by the warranty company. No one shows up. We call the contractor. Hey, you aren't in our assigned contract area. A third contractor is assigned. He rips off the Band-Aid and puts on a splint. Two weeks later, no air conditioning. He comes back per the warranty company's instructions and removes the splint and puts on a cast and gives us a wheelchair. We go a month with air conditioning, and last Friday, despite all this triage, no air conditioning. It took a week to get on anyone's schedule. On the day the technician was to arrive, Thursday, he was a little late. I'll be there between 9 and 2. He was only 12 hours late. He showed up at 9 p.m., he tells me what I know. God bless you for waiting, brother. That's the first thing he said to me when he gets out of the truck. God bless you for waiting, brother. And I said, now what's going to happen is you're going to go over there and you're going to see that the compressor no longer works. And we need to get that on paper that it's dead so that it can be replaced. So he's gone about 20 minutes and he comes back. Hey, man, your compressor's not working. Yeah. And I said, well, can we get this taken care of tonight, tomorrow? Oh, no, i, I got to turn the paperwork in. It'll probably be next week sometime. And I lost my mind. And I went full Haven House on them. And those of you that remember that talk know that that's the last time I lost my mind. So, <laughs> so uh, I threw a hissy fit and I filed formal complaints. I uh, called the Better Business Bureau, Google Reviews. I did it all. But it didn't change anything. And that's the frustrating part, isn't it? Don't, don't you just hate that feeling of being utterly and completely powerless and you can vent and you can carry on and all you really accomplish is getting it off your chest but it don't turn the air conditioning back on and as of this morning we still don't have any air conditioning if you've ever felt powerless in the face of something that's been wrong or some injury that's been inflicted upon you you're a human being to be alive is to be mistreated. Now, I know that life is a wonder. It is a privilege. 
It is a miracle filled with all these moments of laughter and joy, but we also know that life is a mixed bag. And you don't have to possess this mortal coil for very long until you're singing another somebody done, somebody wrong song. And the lack of refrigerated air is pretty low on the list of offenses, really. I mean, it's not, I mean, it wasn't in the moment, obviously. But in the big scheme of things, it's not abuse at the hands of a parent. It's not betrayal by a partner or by a spouse. It's not like the company that you worked for for 30 years stole your retirement. It's not sexual assault. It's not losing a job because of somebody else's incompetence. It's not like getting, you know, sold into slavery by your own brothers where you end up in a foreign land, end up in prison, end up losing more than a decade of your young life. Now we're talking about injury. Here is a justifiable temper tantrum, if ever there was a place for one. Our man Joseph, who we have spent two months with, and it looks like we're going to spend another one with him, has genuinely suffered like few people will ever suffer that you know, and yet he He has persevered to this place that we find him today on top of the world. He is the vice president of Egypt. He is the chairman for the committee to defeat the seven-year famine. Happily married, father of two beautiful boys. His future is prosperous. His past is finally behind him. And what should show up walking through the palace doors but that very past. The exact ones who had done him wrong in the first place walk back into his life. And should a man have a more opportune moment to lose his temper, to lose his mind, and to take vengeance, I don't know when that better opportunity would present itself. Why are the brothers Hebrew in Egypt? They're starving. Their father, Jacob, Joseph's father, who is still living, though Joseph has not seen him for more than 20 years, has sent them to buy grain, but not all of them make the journey. Did you notice that in the text? One youngster, Benjamin, he's probably 30 by now, but he's still the baby boy. Benjamin is held back, and you wonder why Jacob would not send Benjamin with them The text said that he was afraid some harm might come to him. I wonder if 20 years of keeping secrets and 20 years of averted gazes and 20 years of carrying the guilt of what they did to their brother, you know, it's hard to keep a secret like that. And I wonder if it's just a known secret that nobody in the family talks about, but everybody knows what happened. And there is no way Jacob is sending his favored son, the only thing left that he has of Joseph and Rachel, there is no way on God's earth he is sending that boy with this band of brothers. He's going to hold him back and protect him. And here they come in to this palace, blowing off the Sahara like the wind, and they're not the young, fit men they used to be that betrayed Joseph. Now they're middle-aged and graying and old. And they come into that palace. Can you imagine the scene? And Joseph catches the hint of the smell of the sheepfold for the first time in over 20 years. And it all comes flooding back. The last time that he saw his father who sent him on that errand that changed his life, 
The day that his brothers seized him and threw him into a pit. As they tied his wrist and sold him to a caravan. All of that has to come flooding back. And now here they are. Joseph's dreams that he had as a teenager coming true. They bow down before this mysterious leader of Egypt on the palace floor, begging for a few ears of corn to survive the famine that has engulfed the entire Middle East. What will Joseph do? Better question, what would you do? Almost 15 years ago, in fact, 15 years ago, this very week, Charles Roberts, 32-year-old Pennsylvania milkman, prepared his three daughters to go to school with his wife, put them on the bus. His wife left for a Bible study class at our church, and Charles drove out into Amish country to the West Nickel Mine School with enough weapons and supplies for an extended siege and over the course of a couple hours executed five young, beautiful Amish schoolgirls. To this day, we don't know why. It was horrifying. It was shocking. But more shocking than what he did to that community in some ways is how the Amish people responded to him. The Amish took care of each other, as would be expected, visiting victims, families, burying their dead. They prepared meals, they did chores, but they did something else. The first place that they went to after the shooting was the shooter's house. And they fed his widow, and they fed his children. And they set up a trust fund, not for the families of the slain. They set up a trust fund for Charles Roberts' family. One of the grandfathers of the slain girl, his name was Reuben Fisher, he said it like this. It's very important that we teach our children not to think evil of the man who did this. The Roberts family will have a greater load to bear than we will. And all these years later, decade and a half, that attitude of forgiveness and compassion has held in that community. Could I do that? Could you? I mean, I have murderous rage in my heart for the poor guy working the phones at a call center in the middle of Timbuktu. Over my air conditioning. I got a long way to go. Don't we all? For his part, Joseph begins a kind of game. I just love it with his unsuspecting brothers. It's genius. They're there on the stone floor. They think Joseph's been dead for years probably. And Joseph would have looked nothing like the teenage boy that they sold off. If he is truly an Egyptian now, he's got a shaved head, no beard, no long hair. He's in Egyptian cotton and linen. He has mascara painted around his eyes. He's speaking Egyptian, no Hebrew accent 
whatsoever. And they are terrified of him. And he accuses them of being spies. And the most ironic statement in all the texts, we're not spies, we are honest men. If only they knew who they were talking to. And so Joseph throws them in prison, probably the same prison he spent a decade in. For three days. Finally, he lets them out. Says, all right, you can go home. Go on home, feed your family. One of you's got to stay. You better bring that baby brother back to prove your story. And as the pressure increases on these men, what do they do when the pressure starts rising? They start confessing their sins. Verses 21 and following, speaking among themselves, they said, Clearly, we are being punished because of what we did to Joseph. There it is. And then, of course, Reuben with that great, I told you so. He tried to save him early on, but then he became complicit in the cover-up. Because it's never the crime, it's the cover-up, right? And so he's covering up all this stuff. I told you, don't hurt that boy. Joseph's hearing all of this. And what does Joseph do when he begins to hear their confessions? Did you hear it? What did he do? He has to turn around and weep. There's something within him that will not take revenge. There is something within him that is still soft. Do you know why most of us do not take revenge against those who have harmed us? Witnesses. We can't. It's not that we're deterred by the law. Not that we're deterred by our good nature or we have some internal moral code or because it's our love for Jesus that keeps us on the straight and narrow. Most of us, we don't take the revenge that we wish we could take because we can't. We can't reach that persons or persons who hurt us. They are beyond our ability to even the score with. They're too far away, they're too powerful, they got too much money, they're already dead. And as much as we would like to even the score, we simply cannot get to them, they are untouchable. But what if you could? There's another question here, it's the last line of today's text. As Joseph plays this game of cat and mouse with his brothers, drawing out of them the truth, drawing into him his one full brother, Benjamin, the only one of the brothers that has not been involved in the conspiracy against him. He sends the brothers back home, San Simeon, whom he holds as collateral. They have paid for their grain, but on the road they open up their sacks and discover that their money has been returned to them. Which is not a bonus. It means they will be reviewed and seen as thieves. Joseph is reinforcing the spy narrative. And they're standing there on the side of the road. Their heads are all hanging down and they ask the question. Who do they blame? (laughs) What has God done to us? God hasn't done a thing to them. They have done this to themselves, and I plan to say more about this next week, how sin is its own worst punishment. But here, they have to admit by their actions, their past wrongdoings, that they have fallen into God's hands. 
events have overtaken them. A reckoning is upon them. And this is exactly Joseph's intentions as he formulates this scheme. By backing them into a corner, his aim is not to take revenge or to harm them. It is to disarm them. It is a process to achieve truth-telling and truth-showing. And Joseph is in the same place as his brothers. He is putting it all in God's hands to work out. And that is the only answer to the question. When it is within your power to hurt, to harm, to damage to take vengeance, there is only one safe place to put all of that anger and that angst and that hope for retribution. You have to put it in God's hands. There is an act of surrendering our hurts, of handing them over, of letting them go, that takes more power and more discipline and more spiritual and emotional resolve than all of the religious striving and trying that you can ever muster. What has God been doing to Joseph this entire time? Giving him time and space to surrender? What if these men had walked back into Joseph's life when he was 20 years old and he had that kind of power that he has at 40? What if they'd walked back into his life at 29 years old after he'd spent a decade in prison? He probably would have murdered them on the spot. But time has a way, does it not? I mean, I hope in a couple of days we'll be laughing about this whole air conditioning thing. And certainly in a year... When somebody says, what about the summer of 2020? Ronnie, do you remember when you lost air conditioning for the entire summer? You know, I won't even be able to tell you the names of the people involved, like John and Leo and Ashley and Matt and Tyra and Tina and Evelyn and Jim. This placing into God's hands isn't easy, and it sure isn't quick sometimes, but it's necessary. Not just to keep you out of jail or off of parole, but to set you free from your own prison of anger and bitterness. It's for your own liberation that you do these things. True power isn't about having the strength or opportunity to take vengeance. True power is being free enough, surrendered enough, empty enough, loving enough to not have to take vengeance. Power is when we have every justification to even the score. But we don't. That is power. And that's a quote from another epic story. That's a direct quote from a man named Oscar Schindler. And you're familiar in this country, with Oscar Schindler from Steven Spielberg's masterful retelling of his story, Schindler's List, the greatest telling of the Holocaust in American cinema ever. Liam Neeson, uh, Ralph Fiennes, 
or in that movie Liam Neeson plays Oscar Schindler, the German industrialist who uses all of his resources to put Jews on a list. This is a different kind of list. These are his employees. Every person on Schindler's list is a person that will not be sent to a concentration camp. Today, 2020, there are more than 10,000 living descendants of the people that were on Schindler's list alive today because of what that man did. It's a complicated man. He was friends with Amon Go, who was a commandant over the Poslov concentration camp. And Go was a horrifying man who would sit on his balcony with a sniper rifle and with his morning coffee just pick people off by random. And one evening, Schindler and Go are sitting on that same balcony. It's been a drunken party. And Go says to Schindler this, I look at you, I watch you, you're not a drunk, you're in control. Control is power. These people, we control them, and that's power, and that's why they fear us. And then Schindler responds, they fear us because we can kill them. But that's not power. Power is when you have every justification to kill. But you don't. That is real power. It's sort of a sermon. Schindler, the secret Jewish collaborator, desperately trying to get through to a Mongo the Nazi. Did it work? You'll have to see the film for that answer. My question today is, will it work for you? Will it work for me? This opportunity of finding ourselves in God's hands is an opportunity to exercise the greatest power at our disposal, the power to do nothing. And in doing nothing, we do everything.